0: And please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Nahum, chapter 2, as we'll consider the whole of the chapter this evening. Now, as you're turning to Nahum, chapter 2, I know it can take a little bit longer to find this small book, I want to remind you that not all enemies are created equal. In fact, you can even think about just running the trails out there in Squamish. And would you rather run into a squirrel that comes up against you on the trail, or would you rather run up against a cougar or a mountain lion? I think the the choice would be pretty obvious, unless you're the runner in Colorado who's able to strangle a mountain lion. Then you may want to run up against one of those so you can become uh, famous on the internet. But I think the point is simple. Not all enemies are created equal. Some enemies are stronger than others. However, not all enemies are even created. In fact, there is one enemy who is uncreated. And that is the Lord God of armies, or the Lord God of hosts. And when he is against you, There is no worse enemy to be had. Is God your enemy? Or I can ask it this way to use language from our text this evening. Is God for you or is God against you? As a modern day reader of Nahum, in the chapter that we find ourselves in this evening, we are reminded of two basic categories of people in the world. You are either Nineveh at the time of Nahum, and the Lord is against you, as we read about in verse 1, and again in verse 13, this bracket of this chapter, verse 13, is perhaps more clear. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Or, the second option, or second category, is that you are Israel. You are of the true people of God. And that's uh, what we see emerge in verse 2 of the text we're about to read. uh, The only mention uh, there of the people of God. And so, you basically have two categories. uh, That you are either one, that God is against, and God is against you. The uncreated enemy is against you. Or you are Israel, and the Lord is for you. So I wonder how you would answer that question tonight as we begin. Is the Lord against you? Is the Lord for you? Are you unsure? Well, then listen closely to the oracle of Nahum this evening as we consider chapter 2. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches, they dart like lightning. He remembers his officers, they stumble as they go, they hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up, the river gates are opened, the palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped, she is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins, all faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness went? where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Let us pray briefly together. Our Father in heaven, we come to texts like these that we just read, and we notice the ferocity and the intensity of your wrath, of your justice, and of your judgment. And so, Lord, help us to hear these sobering words uh, with open ears and with softened hearts, And let us remember the two categories of people, that you are either for us or against us. And so, Lord, help us uh, to listen carefully, to heed your warnings, and to desire with all our hearts to be a people that you are for, to truly be the true Israel of God, a people of faith in you. And so, Lord, help us tonight to hear these words of warning and to receive them as such, uh, but also, Lord, to receive them as words of life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my intent tonight is for us to try to go through this chapter, uh, verse by verse, as much as possible, uh, a lot in here. And so let us begin. We see the opening line is quite informative for us. As we read, the scatterer has come up against you. Notice here that we see the Lord expressing his opposition to Nineveh by sending the scatterer. We know that it is the Lord ultimately who is against Nineveh because that's where we ended off in chapter, excuse me, in verse 13 of chapter 2. We have that express statement of the Lord recorded for us. It is ultimately the Lord who is against Nineveh. And so in the Lord's opposition to this city, he is sending the scatterer, the scatterer. And who is this scatterer then? Well, if we look up some of the historical records, uh, we see that in actuality, it's going to be the Medes and the Babylonians who will sack Nineveh. Uh, This coalition of these two peoples uh, under two different kings, uh, Syaxares and uh, Nabopolassar. in the late 7th century BC, came against Nineveh and scattered her or sent her into exile. And so we have uh, this being foretold. Uh, Before that actually took place, we have this being foretold by Nahum here, that the scatterer has come up against you. Now, calling the invading force the scatterer is giving Nineveh the assurance that she will not be able to withstand the assault and maintain themselves as a unified uh, fighting force or as a unified people safe within the city walls. Scattering in ancient warfare um, meant uh, being defeated, uh, that it was the opposite of standing firm and fending off the advancing enemy attack. It was the result of being slaughtered or surrendering and then being driven from your homeland into exile, being carried off and scattered abroad like ashes. And so that's uh, the assurance that Nineveh is receiving just in the short opening line of chapter 2, that the scatterer has come up against you, not the invader, not, uh, not just simply an enemy, but an effective enemy, one uh, who will scatter you. And so the rest of verse 1 then is not so much uh, instruction uh, for Nineveh, uh, but something of a taunt or a mocking of them. Uh, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, or gird up your loins, as some of your translations may have it more literally there. Collect all your strength. In other words, bring all you got, but the scatterer will come, and your strength, all of it, in the end, will prove useless. So this is not instruction. Here in verse 1, uh, it is a warning. Uh, it is an assurance that the destruction is coming. Uh, but in one sense, it's also the first assault. Uh, this this oracle in and of itself, these words being spoken. Uh, I liken it to when I was in the military. And we would be um, put through a selection course. And they would try to distress us as much as they possibly could. Well, one of the ways they did that psychologically was by telling us something that they were going to do to us in the future. And then something that you had to sit and wait or think about all day long. Oh no, we messed up this morning. They said we're going to pay tonight. And then you have all day long to dwell on the fact that you're going to have to pay for your violations or pay for your misconducts. And so that's, uh, we could say here is even the first assault, is these words spoken with such assurance of their destruction, and yet it has not yet come. They will wait for it. And so we see then that uh, this is an attack, not only uh, being prophesied and predicted uh, by Nahum, um, but had Nineveh received this word, uh, it, that in it of itself would have been the first psychological Attack to them. Well, verse 2, then, as we move there, we see that there's a massive shift, we could say, or a massive change in the tone. Uh, No longer is Nineveh uh, being addressed directly in terms of her destruction, um, but we have really the flip side of that coin. Uh, The reason for the destruction. Of Nineveh, and that is here in verse 2 For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. In other words, the Lord is saying, My vineyard has been plundered, my vineyard has been plucked, its fruit has been taken, its branches have been ruined. In other words, yes. I've used you to chastise my people. I've used you to punish my people in the past. But guess what? You are now being called to account for what you've done to my people. In their bloodthirst and in their greed, uh, the Lord allowed the Assyrians uh, and uh, Nineveh, of course, being the capital city of Assyria. uh, The Lord allowed the Assyrians to come against his vineyard and to break its branches uh, in a form of a disciplinary action against his people. But now the Lord is reminding them that the Jacob and Israel is certainly his vineyard, and it is the time for <clears throat> restoration. The winter months are over. Uh, restoration of majesty is at hand. And so, the restoration of Israel means the destruction of all those who have troubled her. Excuse me. And so, what follows then is what we have here in verses 3 through 13. Now, we could take this um, as one section. Uh, We are going to see unpacked before us uh, what the restoration of Israel looks like as it entails the destruction of Nineveh. And in many ways, in the language that we're going to see here, this wouldn't have been unfamiliar language to the Ninevites. Now, some details that we're going to see in this chunk of verses will concern Nineveh only. uh, But the actions that are prophesied against them in this oracle uh, would have been actions that they would have at one time taken themselves. Nineveh, Assyria, have been very much about the same activities that are outlined for us here, as as we will read them here and unpack them in just a moment. In other words, Nineveh is going to reap what they have sown. As they have treated other countries, as they have treated other people groups, as they have treated the vineyard of the Lord, God is not mocked. They will reap what they sow. Since they have sown to please themselves, they will now reap destruction. Let's see then how this destruction is depicted. And as we do, it's probably put this way in your Bibles on your page. But you should automatically see these shortened sentences, uh, almost as if they're short and choppy. Uh, Like each sentence comes while one is trying to catch his breath in the heat of battle. Uh, There's very little dialogue. In fact, there's no dialogue. uh, Just a few cries, uh, as we'll see. Uh, Very little talk, but very big action. In fact, this section plays out like an action film with overwhelming sounds and sights and very little spoken. And So let us jump in then, beginning with verse 3. And it is here that we see that the coming judgment upon Nineveh will bring death and destruction. I'm not going to reread every verse, so if you just want to track with me. We see in verse 3 that this death and destruction is coming to Nineveh, really in the imagery that is set before them. We see that their life will be drained by the shedding of blood. In fact, blood is the main point in this verse, although it is not even mentioned. The shields are red, as we see, appearing to be stained with blood. The clothing is scarlet, appearing to be stained with much bloodshed. In other words, this assaulting force that is coming against them, it's not their first rodeo. It's not the first time they've ever been in a, a bloody battle, and they have emerged victorious. And now they're coming as a fierce fighting force against Nineveh, stained with shields stained in blood and garments stained in blood as well. But not only is blood brought to the forefront in this verse, we also see uh, these weapons of destruction, uh, the machinery that draws blood, the metal chariots and the brandished spears, weapons of warfare, weapons of swift destruction. And then we see the chariots get extra attention as we move to verse four. And the action moves from the coming chariots as they are charging toward the city to now the chariots within the city here in verse four, as they race madly through the streets, they rush to and fro through the squares. So we see then that a breach has been made. Uh, no longer is Nineveh sitting uh, confidently and safely uh, behind sealed and enclosed walls. No longer does she have a, a fortress with integrity, uh, but the breach has been made. And you can just imagine the sounds then of these chariots racing through the streets, the sounds echoing off the narrow uh, street walls. And you can imagine the visuals of people running Uh, running for their lives as these chariots are darting back and forth like lightning and gleaming like torches. Imagine something like this tearing around the corner in your neighborhood. You would run and you would go and find your favorite hiding spot. But that hiding spot wouldn't last long as the scatterer remembers his officers or his foot soldiers and they begin stumbling as they go. With such haste to the wall as they themselves want to get in on the action. And so the siege tower to overcome a city wall is set up, and the officers are making haste to come and to join in the bloodshed, to clear out the houses and the hiding places that the chariots have chased people into. And then we see an important detail as we come to verse 6, that the river gates are opened. The river gates are also known as floodgates, uh, as many historians write about these, and they record uh, the histories of different cities and their downfalls. Uh, one historian records uh, the downfall of Nineveh this way. Uh, this is Diodorus Siculus. And he said that due to heavy rainfall and the rise of the rivers uh, of the Tigris and the Koser, the floodgates were overrun and a section of the city wall dissolved, enabling the Babylonians and the Medes to enter the city. It appears then that the Lord made the work even easier for the breaching armies to get into the city at the weak points of these river gates by sending forth uh, uh, an enormous amount of rain uh, to flood these gates of the city and to dissolve the wall. Well, as we see then that the the infiltration and the penetration of the forces of the chariots, of the foot soldiers, as the waters uh, have broken uh, over uh, the gates, uh, we see the uh, prophetic high-definition camera now pan Uh, to the palace and uh, to the inhabitants there, the harem of women uh, that would have been here in Nineveh. Uh, There is a variant there in verse 7. I read to you its mistress, because that's what I have uh, here in the ESV. Your translation might say something like, it is decreed uh, she is stripped. And I think that's the right way to read it. Um, And so, uh, it is decreed. Uh, She is stripped, she is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves, and beating their breasts. We see that the women are spared from the slaughter that is soon coming, but they are not spared from shame as they are uncovered. They are not spared from suffering as they are taken captive. Uh, We see here uh, that uh, the city has been completely overrun. For a city that cannot protect its women is one that is utterly defeated. Uh, This carrying off then is likened uh, to an empty, drained pool as we move into verse 8. The women will be carried off. Therefore, Nineveh, verse 8, is like a pool whose waters run away. The source of life uh, is, is draining quickly from Nineveh. And so the inhabitants, we have the the recorded cries of the inhabitants here, halt, halt, or stop, stop, they cry, but none turns back. The draining water doesn't listen to the desperate cries of the people. Uh, Nineveh runs dry. So we see that the coming judgment then will drain in Nineveh of all life, never to sprout up again. Verse 9, we see that the plundering now will take place as not only the women will be carried off, but also the precious things of silver and of gold. And we see then one of the precision strikes of, of the Lord here in, in Nineveh, reaping what they've sowed. Uh, if we go back up to verse 2, we remember that it was the Lord's people who have been plundered. And it was the Assyrians themselves who had plundered them. Uh, But now we have here the command, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Uh, The Assyrians had not only plundered uh, Israel, uh, they had plundered many peoples, and they are being called to account for the plundering they had done. And they are now reaping what they sowed and being plundered themselves. But you also see something of a commentary then of a city, of a people group uh, that the Lord is against. It's one that has its treasure uh, in these perishable things of gold and silver. It's a it's a people that has its treasure in plunderable goods, things that can be taken away for where the treasure is there, the heart is as well. In a city that treasures these things, a city whose heart is after the Perishable and plunderable uh, comes to uh, only one certain and definitive end, and that's where we come to in verse 10. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. We saw there in verse 1 that uh, the, the Ninevites were commanded to dress for battle or to gird up their loins. Well, now those loins that were called to be girded up are the very loins that are now in anguish. And their faces grow pale. Not only has the water uh, been drained from Nineveh. Not only has uh, the source of life been drained from Nineveh and the women being taken. Uh, but also uh, the color from the people's faces is draining away from the horrid events that are unfolding before them. In verses 11 and 12, we have uh, Nahum then bringing into view uh, the royal family. Uh, As the lions are brought into view here, uh, we know the lions uh, in the animal kingdom, right? They're the the kings uh, and queens of of all the animals. Uh, Well, likewise, in ancient uh, terminology, lions uh, often spoke of uh, the royal families. And so we see here uh, going into the Holy of Holies or that inner chamber of the uh, king and the queen and the royal harem here in verses 11 and 12. With the simple reminder that the devouring lion, uh, this king of the earth uh, who had set himself on destruction and the destroying of others will now be destroyed. This devouring lion will now be devoured. The royal city in the royal family, who never thought that a disturbance could ever come their way, who sat comfortably and who sat pridefully in their prestige and in their wealth and in their devouring of others, will now be fully devoured by the sword, as we read there in verse 13. The sword shall devour your young lions. So even the royal lineage of this family will come to an utter end. One last detail I want to point out before we close uh, our time this evening here in verse 13 are these final words of chapter 2. As everything has been drained away, as the lifeblood has been drained away from Nineveh, as the water, the life-giving water has been drained away from Nineveh, as their women are carried off into exile, as the royal family is devoured, even their uh, royal lineage. We have this uh, lasting, uh, really, effect of all of that, and that is the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Utter silence is what comes upon Nineveh. They will not be able to send out messengers to call for help, to call for reinforcements. No longer will any messengers be able to go uh, out and declare victory for any more battles. Utter silence is what comes to Nineveh. And that's something I want to point out, because if you look at the way chapter 1 ended, or... If you have a little footnote there, you actually realize that chapter 1, verse 15, in the Hebrew Bible, is chapter uh, 2, verse 1, the very chapter we are considering uh, this evening. And notice the stark contrast, then, between uh, the state of Nineveh and the utter silence that befalls her, with no messengers uh, to uh, be heard any longer, with as what's probably labeled in your Bibles there, verse 15 of chapter 1, Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And so the way this chapter begins in the Hebrew is with the messengers of the Lord. Uh, the messengers who proclaim the good news and the peace to God's people. The good news to Judah as she is to continue on in faithfulness and in comfort and assurance. Knowing that she will never again be trampled upon by worthless nations like Nineveh. And so it is a stark contrast uh, that chapter 2 ends on from where chapter 2 began uh, there, uh, in, at least in the Hebrew uh, versification of our text. Well, concluding thought then, I think one commentator uh, gives us a helpful insight into understanding uh, the remarkability of what we just read in chapter 2. He says this, What is interesting to contemplate today is not only that the warning was given, but the detail that was revealed to the Ninevites of God's activity. It is as though the Nazis in 1944 or Saddam Hussein in 2003 had been given detailed plans of how the Allies would assault them. Even though the Ninevites had these battle plans, there was nothing they could do to stop the advance of the enemy and the complete fulfillment of God's judgment upon them. You see then, none of this oracle that Nahum gives us was actually instruction on how to prepare for the coming day of trouble. It was a depiction of how that day would unfold for them, no matter the preparation they took, even if they mustered all their strength, gathered all their strength together. Why? Because their time of repentance had passed. Time had run out for Nineveh. The clock stopped ticking for Nineveh, and the Lord was against them, because they were never for him. Now this warning is not the final warning in Scripture. As Nahum uh, warned uh, Nineveh, so too Jesus warned the people of his day about the coming destruction of a different city, the city of Jerusalem. And the result was the same. Jerusalem was destroyed just as Jesus warned them. But the warning that Jesus gave was different. In his warning, he also gave them an out. When he told his people in the first century, when the Roman armies surround the walls of Jerusalem, make sure you flee to the mountains, get away from the city. Jesus gave an out, he gave a warning. So that you would not succumb, or that his people would not succumb to the bitter end of death. The sword, the devouring sword of the Romans. But there will also be a final day of the Lord and a final day of judgment that Jesus has warned us about as well. Not the one in Jerusalem there in the first century, but one that will come like a thief in the night. One day, the clock will stop ticking for all of us one day the time of repentance will have passed one day the day of trouble will come and so all day although the warning of nahum that we just considered is not the last warning in scripture it very well could be our last warning it could be my last warning it could be your last warning And the warning that we receive is not like the warning to Nineveh, for they had no out, but you and I have an out. In fact, when Jesus said to flee to the mountains, to his own people, they knew they would only survive that one attack. But they also knew that if they were to survive the greater day of judgment, that they would have to flee to a different mountain, that they would have to flee to the rock, the refuge, Jesus Christ. Himself, And that is where we must flee tonight. That's the only safe place to flee. It's the only safe place to take refuge when that day of trouble comes. If we are to flee from the wrath of God to come, we must flee to the rock that he provides. And when that great and final day of trouble comes, if you are to be found in the stronghold of the Lord you must take refuge in Him before that day. If you have already taken refuge in Him, then praise God. You can go through life with an unshakable peace and comfort and hope of knowing when the clock runs out that the trouble that you face here on earth is the worst trouble you'll ever face. That the trouble here is only a light and momentary affliction that is incomparable to the surpassing weight of glory that awaits you. But if you haven't taken refuge in Him, then any trouble you face now on earth, when the clock runs out, will be the slightest and smallest foretaste of the crushing weight of trouble that awaits you forever. What we just read about in Nahum is only a verbal depiction of the trouble that awaits those forever who are against the Lord and to whom the Lord is against. And so if you haven't taken refuge in the Lord, then flee to Him today in faith. May today be the day of your salvation, and you can be sure that you have fled the wrath to come before death overtakes you. For Hebrews reminds us that it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment. There are no second chances after death. And death comes, oftentimes, without warning. So before death comes to each one of you, make sure you have fled the wrath to come. Make sure you have fled to the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure the Lord is your refuge, your fortress, when that day of trouble comes. And you can be certain that the Lord is not against you but the Lord is for you. And if the Lord is for you, if the uncreated God is for you, and He is not the uncreated enemy against you, then you can be sure that nothing in all of creation can separate you from His love. And you can be sure that if God is for you, then nothing can be against you. No weapon formed, no weapon created could ever undo the protection that you have In the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven. We thank you for the rock that is higher than us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that all nations. All kings. All rulers. All peoples of the earth are called to take refuge in him. For we know that there is a worldwide coming judgment. A day of trouble that will make the day of trouble in Nineveh. Uh, pale in comparison. And so, Lord, we pray for each one of us here in this room that we would come to find our refuge and our resting place in Jesus Christ. And, Lord, as we pray that, we also pray for those in Squamish who don't know you, ones who are against you, and therefore you are against them. Lord, we fear for them. We fear that the same realities we just read about in Nahum are only a small foretaste of the realities that await those who don't know you as refuge. And so Lord, we pray that you would extend the awareness of the ultimate reality of your judgment, you would bring conviction, and you would bring an urgency for people to find refuge and to flee to the Lord of Jesus Christ and to be saved in him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.